First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter one. We're there today, and uh, this is a, if you're if you're this is your first time with us. We're starting a new book of the Bible, and I'm always excited when we do that because I, the way I look at this is when we go through uh, a book of the Bible, I always look at it and go, "I'm going to know this book by the time that we're we're done with this." So I love doing I love doing this, and so this is our, our first time in this. This is going to be by way of introduction today. This book is going to be very different than what we've been studying through the first part of the year. If you've been here, we've studied through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of believers who came from a very strong Jewish background. They had a great command of the Old Testament. And uh, this is going to be very different. It's going to be written to a group of people who've come out of a very pagan background who have no Old Testament background. It's going to be very, very practical. And uh, as we get, get into this book, one of the things that I'm going to have to do is I'm going to stick with the main lessons. There's so much that we could say. And so each and every week, the big challenge is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? But uh, we're going to stick with the main, the main uh, lessons or messages in this, in this particular book, just so we can, we can keep, thing, keep things moving. One of the things that we're going to find is that these people, unlike the people that we've been studying in Hebrews in the early part of the year, the people in Corinth are a lot like us. They're very much, uh, their culture is very much like our culture in some ways. And we'll see that as we travel through. So there's going to be lots of application. The, uh, there on your, uh, out, well, actually, let's just go to a map. Corinth was uh, a Greek city, is a Greek city. And uh, if you notice there at the top of the map, you have Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And uh, this is Paul's missionary journey. So you'll see a letter to the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and under the Bereans. That's an interesting story. He goes down to Athens, and ultimately, he winds up here in Corinth. Now, Corinth, the name Corinth, I put that there in your outline, just means which is satisfied, ornament, or beauty. And what you'll notice about Corinth is down in the bottom kind of left-hand corner of the, the screen, you'll notice that there's two bodies of water that come together. And uh, there was an isthmus, isthmus between them, this four-mile stretch. And what they did was they took that four-mile stretch and all the boats that would come down, all the ships that would come down from Rome and head over to Asia, which we would call modern-day Turkey for the most part, they would come to this little town of Corinth and they built a road between the two bodies of water. And it was a paved road, so your ship would come out of the water and then they would take it to the other and then they'd put it in on the other side. And the reason they did that is if you were, that would save you over 250 miles of sailing, but it was very treacherous sailing. So it just made more sense to do to come across and go over that, that road. Actually, they, modern day, they do the same thing. Let's go to the next. Uh, now they've just built a canal all the way across. But before, that was just a paved road and they take the ships out and take it to the other side. Now, because they did that, uh, Corinth became a very, very wealthy town. And uh, uh, they'd have all types of um, goods coming in and coming out because of their wealth. They were uh, they were very much into recreation, very much into leisure. There was always an abundance of sailors coming in from all parts of the world, and so there was money being spent there in Corinth. And so, because of that, uh, Corinth is going to be unique in that that ancient world. One of the things that we're going to see about Corinth is that it had a number of temples, but the main temple in Corinth was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love and sex. 
And uh, if you put a picture, we've just showed you a headshot. Don't Google Aphrodite because uh, the, the statues are very, very, um, well, you know. So anyway, she's the goddess of love and sex for a reason. And so what they did there in Corinth, and this was common among the other temples, but this is the prominent one, the way that they had funding for the temple is that, that Aphrodite, there at the temple, they had a thousand temple prostitutes. Uh, most were female, some were male, and they would go out into the city at night. Their act of worship would be to sell themselves and uh, that money that would come in would go to fund the temple. And so the way that you worshipped Aphrodite and the way that you supported the temple would be that you would go be with a temple prostitute and then that would come in. Now because of that they were able to build some very elaborate temples. Some are still standing today. You can see the man standing down at the bottom of that temple. So uh, pretty, pretty impressive even after, after 2,000 years. So that would raise a great deal of money for, for the, uh, the buildings that they built. I only want to say that currently we are in a building project and uh, <laughs> we are thinking of possible ways of raising money. And I've gone to the board of directors. They say, no, we're just going to keep boxes in the back. But, you know, anyways, so just put that out there. This is a town that's very much into sexual fulfillment. And uh, this is nothing like Jerusalem. Now, when you, you read about Jesus in the Gospels, and he would be there in, in Israel, Israel's a very Middle Eastern, conservative, religious area. This is a very Western, uh, pagan, so it was nothing like what you would see in the Middle, Middle East. So it's a very, very different environment. One of the things that we'll find is they were very much into sports. They hosted what's called the Isthmian Games, and they, they had an amphitheater that sat 18,000 people. And so uh, very impressive 2,000 years ago. Might not be impressive today, but 2,000 years ago that was very, very impressive. The men were very competitive, and they did their very best to look like the Greek statues that, that you would see. They were into philosophy and education. And so in many ways it was a culture much like our own. So it's in this culture that Paul the Apostle, he's left the area where the Jewish people are there in Israel and in all of that, and he comes all the way down into Greece, and he arrives in Corinth in about 50 AD. This is about 17 years after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And as he arrives, that story is told in Acts chapter 18. I put one verse there on your outline. I encourage you to read that story later on. It's very interesting, some of the things that takes place. But it says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he settled there a year and six months, so 18 months, teaching the word of God. And I want you to underline that, teaching the word of God. So Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months, and you want to write that down. That's the, the duration of his ministry there. And his method would be teaching God's word, teaching God's word. There's a few Jewish people there, but mostly the people who are in Corinth come from a very pagan background. They don't know anything of the God of the Bible. They don't know anything, um, anything about him, nothing of the scriptures. By and large, they're an affluent group of people. They're uh, a sexually oriented culture. They're into all sorts of recreation and leisure. They're as pagan as pagan can be. And what's interesting to me is that Paul goes to that environment and he just starts by starting a Bible, a Bible study. And as he does that, God, he trusts God's word and God's word begins to do its work and God begins to work in the lives of people where he just does a, a Bible study. And uh, ultimately, the church does great. Paul will leave the church after 18 months, and then they will stop doing some of the things that Paul was doing, and then all of a sudden problems will creep into the church. 
So after 18 months, Paul leaves the church and he goes on, continues in his missionary journey, and he passes it off to the next pastor. The second pastor will be a guy named Apollo. So we'll talk about him today. After a period of time, he's going to leave and he's going to turn it over to another pastor. So by the time our story picks up, they're on their third or their fourth pastor. And so it's going to be about five to eight years after Paul starts the church that the church people begin to realize that they're going through a time of difficulty. They're trying to figure out some things. Some are saying this and some are saying that. and It should be this way. It should be that way. And everybody senses that in this church that something's not right. So what they do is they send a delegation and to find the Apostle Paul, and they have a list of questions. And they say, Paul, here are some of the things that we're dealing with. Can you answer these questions for us? And we'll take it back to the congregation. So this letter is written to answer questions that these believers had. I want to show you how this works. Everybody flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7. We'll do this very quickly. Chapter 7. Um, and then look up at me when you're, when, when you're there, just so I know. Okay, chapter 7, everybody's there. So notice he says, and I want you to underline this phrase. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Everybody see that? So Paul's going to begin to answer their list of questions. The first question he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now we read that, that and we think he's making a statement. That's actually their first question. Is it okay for a man to touch a woman? Is it okay to go ahead and get married? Why are they writing that? Well, we'll see when we get there that this was a Greek town, so they were very steeped in Greek, Greek philosophy, and some of that philosophy was coming into the church. On the one side, you have what was called the ascetics, and they believed in staying away from any type of earthly pleasure. And so marriage or the physical relationship would be physical uh, pleasure, and so they said, stay away from that, never gratify that. And so they would say, don't even get married. On the other hand, you had the hedonists. And that philosophy was coming into the church. And they were saying, you know, the the material world, the natural world can't be saved. That's just done away with. The spirit, on the other hand, is separate from that. And that can be saved. So what does it matter if you gratify the the desires of the flesh? Because that's just going to pass away anyways. So here's the question, Paul, how do we, you know, what do we do with that? Which led to the next question, which is in chapter 7, verse 25, chapter 7, verse 25, and everybody flip over there real quick. And then you'll see it says, now concerning, and I want you to underline that, now concerning. Now concerning virgins. And he's going to talk about, is it okay for our young women, and ultimately young women and the young men, can they get married? Is that a good thing? Should they not? Should they? And he's going to talk about that. Then you go to chapter 8. Everybody go flip over to chapter 8. And it opens up, and you want to underline the, the two Two words, now concerning. This will be the next question that he responds to. Things sacrificed to idols. And uh, is there a place or are there uh, things that are appropriate for Christians or inappropriate for Christians? Are there some places that you should go or you shouldn't go? One of the things that we'll find when we get there is that in that town there is a number of temples. So people would bring their sacrifice to the temple And so the temple received the sacrifice free of charge. And so they would sacrifice that sacrifice, whatever animal that might be. But then they would take the meat that was left over and they would go to the back of the temple and they had a restaurant. So you could go there and you could eat at the restaurant in the back of the temple. And it was cheaper than any other place in town because they got it for free so they could could sell it cheaper than anybody else could. And so is it okay to go there? Are there some places? 
I, I think for us, um, you know, when you look around our community, there's this, this place as you go, you go down 95, and you go down a few exits, it's on the right, and it's called um, Rachel's, and uh, they advertise, what, what are they, a seafood place? What, are, what is that? What are they? And why do you know that? So there's some places probably a Christian needs to not go. <laughs> some of you have heard that before. You're like, I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> Why do you know that? All right. So, so that was the question. Then you go to chapter 12 very quickly, and uh, Paul's responding to a question, now concerning spiritual gifts. And we'll look at that when we get there. They'll say, you know, this is going on, that's going on. You know, can you give some clarity on that? Then in chapter 16, you go to chapter 16, and he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And uh, so what's going to happen there is they're supporting the ministry of the church, but there's still some other things. In this particular case, above that, they're taking up a special offering. How should we handle that situation? So it all begins in chapter 7 by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So then he begins to answer the questions. So come back to chapter 1. By the way, do you find that interesting? Chapter 1, and what we're going to find is that Paul sits and he listens to what's going on, and as he hears their questions and they describe some things going on, Paul says, I'm going to answer your questions, and he's going to get to that in chapter 7, but he says, but but really what's happening is I'm seeing that there's some deeper things going on, and I need to talk about those things before we get to these things, because the, because we haven't dealt with these things, the other things are becoming a problem. Hopefully I said that right. So he deals with the deeper issues first. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and Paul writes to this church, he says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Just uh, underline Sosthenes. Again, there's so much we could talk about, but um, I'm just going to highlight a few things. When he says Sosthenes, Later on, when you get a chance, read chapter 18 of the book of Acts. Sosthenes was a former member of the Jewish synagogue. Some things happen. Uh, he becomes a believer and then becomes the traveling companion of Paul. Verse 2, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's not the church of Corinth, the church of God at Corinth. To those who have been sanctified, my Bible says, in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So I put verse 2 there in your outline. There's some things that we need to just know right on the front end that's going to be important for our study. But verse 2 there in your outline, he says, to the church, and I've underlined that word church, of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified, and I've underlined that word, in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So very quickly, Paul calls them a church, and you want to write that down. And he says that they are sanctified, and that means set apart for special service. And so God has a very special role for this church in that time. And uh, we also saw Jesus and called to be holy. So Jesus called this church to be holy. We're going to find out that they might not be as, as holy as they should. And uh, they called on the name of Jesus. And so you want to write that down. Those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now that's important because this church, as we get into this, we're going to find that they have some real issues. 
And Paul says, but you're still a church. You're still calling on the name of Jesus. You're still set apart. You still have a special mission, and you've been called to be holy. So that's important. So he never doubts that they're a church. You and I, as we read some of these things, we might doubt it, but he never does. Verse 3 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And just very quickly, grace was the Greek greeting. Peace was the Hebrew greeting from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he never doubts that they're a church. But then you come to verse 4, and verse 4 is where the plot really begins to thicken for me. And Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now as we get into this, we notice that Paul doesn't say, I thank God for your righteousness, because Paul can't say that. Uh, He doesn't say, I thank God for your incredible faith. He can't say that. But in verse 4, here's what he's saying. Paul says, there in your outline, Paul says, you know, when I think of you, I thank God for his grace. Write that down. And that's important for our study. Now here's why. As we get into this book, here's what we're going to see. You get to chapter 5, one guy is living with his stepmother. They're cohabitating. Paul says, that's weird. What are you doing? We're going to find that the believers are coming to church and uh, they're coming for the Lord's Supper. Some are getting drunk to the point where they're passed out and others are showing up and there's, you know, there's nothing for them. Then we're also going to find that some believers are involved in sexual relationships outside of marriage. Some have even gone to be with some of the local temple prostitutes. Uh, they're doing things we're going to find later on when you get to chapters 12 through 14. Paul hears of things going on in the church service. He says, you know, you're doing some things in your church service, and if a non-believer shows up, he's going to say, you're mad, you're out of your mind. And so he's going to deal with that. In chapter 15, Paul says, now let me just clarify what the gospel is, because you guys seem to have forgotten what the gospel really is. Now that's all important because this church is going to have some major problems. Their salvation will never be questioned. He, he holds that they are still believers, they're saved. The issue is not their salvation, the issue is that they are now acting like unbelievers. And so he's going to deal with that. Verses 5 and 6. He says that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. There really are believers. God's still using them. They're still a mess. And I might say that they're a mess like 20 times in this. Verse 7, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's, there's two things I want to highlight here. First of all, the second thing that he says is you're awaiting eagerly the revelation of Jesus Christ. This church was looking expectantly for Jesus to come back, and that's a good thing. So they got that right. And then he says, he says you're not lacking in any gift. You're not lacking in any gift. One of the things that we're going to find, several places it's going to allude to this, that this church is filled, its people are filled with what we would call spiritual gifts. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But we're going to learn something um, about spiritual gifts. And I want you to write this down. That we're going to learn that using spiritual gifts is not an indication of spiritual maturity. It's an indication of God's grace. 
And what we're going to find is that somebody can have the gift of teaching and they can really draw a crowd. That doesn't mean that what they're teaching is always accurate. We've looked around the church landscape and we've seen people who are very gifted in teaching, in evangelism, and used very powerfully. And then one day it comes out that there's this incredible immorality in their life. Spiritual maturity and spiritual giftedness are two very different things. Their problem will be, and we'll see when we get there, is that they thought that spiritual gifts was an indication of spiritual maturity. And the two are not always the same. Does that make sense? And we'll talk about that when we get there. Verses 8 and 9. He says, and I'm going to pick up this, uh, the last line of verse 7. And he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, and then it goes on, it says, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be blameless when you stand before Jesus. You're a mess, but you're going to be blameless when you stand before Jesus. Now here's why. Verse 9, God is faithful, underline that, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There in your outline I put that verse. Let me read it again who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is going to begin with a settled issue. Now they're a mess. I've told you some things that they're doing. It's not good, but here's the settled issue. And you want to write this down. They're believers. They're believers. And then I want you to write down What we see in this verse where he says God is faithful, their salvation rests in God's faithfulness, not theirs. Their salvation rests in God's faithfulness, not theirs. Aren't you glad that your salvation before God rests in his faithfulness and not yours? Now you're much more spiritual than me, but I'd go about 10 minutes and I'd be toast if it was resting on me because there's no way I could hold it together. I I, I, want to be better Here's what I've learned about God. I've learned, um, you've heard me say, if you've been around, that I've learned more about God by being a dad than by going to Bible college or seminary or you know, all the things that I've studied. Because we're told that you and I are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God, there's many things that we can learn about God by looking at ourselves because we're unique in the creation. So one of the things that I find is that in our house, as you know, we have a number of children, but right now we have two two-year-olds, the twins, and they're going to be three in a couple of weeks, and then we have Sunday, and he's three. And so sometimes daddy will have to cross a very busy parking lot with the kids. And so I do this thing, all of our families have our own rituals, but I do this thing where I do this with my hands, I go hands, 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 and they all know to run up and grab my hand. So hands, 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 and they all run up. Now, now parents, you're created in the image of God. So imagine you come up and your child grabs you. They typically grab your pinky or something like that. What do you grab? The whole forearm. Typically, isn't that how it works? And so here you are. You're walking across a busy parking lot, and your child decides and says, you know, I don't want to hold your hand. I'm done holding hands with you. I'm going to do my own thing. Now, parents, do you let them go? I mean, is it toast for them? Do they have the opportunity to make that decision? Why not? Well, because you, you know that, that you're not going to let them do that. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but uh, every once in a while, moms and dads, you know, you're, you're out there. Maybe you've had this experience. You know, you're going across the parking lot. You've got a shopping cart, 
and you've got a child, and the child decides, I don't want to hold your hand anymore. You ever had that? And as you're pushing them across, they start to pull, and they're doing this, and you're trying to pull. And for me, it's especially difficult because I'm the pastor, and public's people wave at me. So like, you're doing this. And then maybe your kid does this. This is like the, the big one. They go, I'm, you know, now watch this. And they just pick up their legs. They ever do that? And then now you're dragging this child across the parking lot. People are waving at And you look down and you go, I'm going to drag your butt across this parking lot. We get to the car, you're going to find out what's what, you know. Okay, am I the only one who's ever said or thought anything like that? Can you say butt in church? All right. I don't really say that or think that, but uh, it's happened. But here's the thing. I'm not going to let them go. I'm not giving them the opportunity to make that decision. They're mine. Us getting across the parking lot has nothing to do with their faithfulness to holding on to daddy. It has everything to do with daddy's faithfulness holding on to them. Make sense? And we're going to see that all the way through this book. So they've asked some questions. And Paul says, I need to deal with the first issue right up front. And uh, so we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And he says, now I exhort you. And notice the language here. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you all be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then verse 11, he says, for I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know who Chloe is. Uh, Chloe could be a prominent family leader in the church who sent a delegation to Paul. Could be somebody in the community and people part of their household are are believers and they've gone. So we don't really know uh, whether Chloe, we assume that Chloe's a believer. Also, it's interesting that Chloe's name can either be male or female. We, We don't really know that either. So he says, so verse 12, he says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So you got four divisions there. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. By the way, that word Crispus, do you know what that word means? What do you think? Crispy. Means. So it's, I don't know what you do with that, but that's what his name means. So he says, I, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now that's interesting to me because Paul says, I mean, he's going to say it again, that I, I didn't really baptize a bunch of you. So, so if baptism were essential for salvation, you think that Paul would have made it a much higher priority on his list. Verse 15, so that none of you would ever say that you were baptized in my name, now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And I want you to underline this little phrase, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. So uh, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So as we've gone through that, that passage, this is going to be the first issue. This church was divided into four groups. And all of the groups had a certain amount of merit, but they also had a certain amount of uh, problems associated with it. All of them are right and all of them are wrong. 
When we get to chapter 3, Paul's going to say this on your outline. He says, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. So Paul is saying, you know, I'm a servant, Apollos is a servant, but we have a very different style of doing ministry. We're both servants of the same Christ, but we're not divided. We're not divided. I've learned just a a little bit of uh, personal uh, insider information. My My closest friends in ministry are pastors who do things very differently than I would ever do. If you've been up to Stewart, you know there's a place called the Grace Place. Rick Addison's the pastor there. He and I meet once a month for breakfast, 6.30 in the morning, Cracker Barrel. We are the best of friends, but we do things very, very differently. Um, Norman Benz down at Covenant is like a father to me. We're very, very close, and yet he's, he's much more on the Pentecostal side than I would be, but we're very, very close. We're not divided. We just have very different styles of doing ministry, and Paul is, uh, is, is making that point. You know, we're just, we're just different. But in verse 12, he says, he says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's going to be Peter, and I of Christ. So there, there's different styles, and uh, you notice the last one is of Christ, and that sounds like a good thing. We're going to find out that there's some, some bad uh, parts of that, and we'll talk about that. So, so you have these four groups, these four camps in the church and hopefully I can explain this in a, in, a, in a decent way. First of all, you have Paul. He's the first pastor, and uh, his style of ministry is going to be basic Bible. And I want you to write that down, basic Bible. So in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be, wouldn't be made void. And uh, then we'll see in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I put it on your outline, Paul says, you know, I didn't use lofty words and Brilliant ideas to tell you God's message. Apparently others did. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then we saw when we were talking about Paul coming to this town in Acts, it just started with a Bible study. just started teaching the Bible. Paul's methodology was just basic Bible. That is the, the style that we use here at Calvary. This is a basic Bible church. So when you come here, you know we're going to open up the Bible, we're going to study through. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes not so fun, but it's always going to be basic Bible. And so, but then there's the next pastor. When Paul leaves, he turns the church over to the next pastor, and that would be Apollos. Now, Apollos is more the rock star uh, ministry. So go ahead and write that down. We probably could say it another way, but you know, Paul says, I didn't use uh, I didn't use brilliant ideas and lofty words. Apparently somebody else did. And uh, later on, Paul would say about Apollos, there on your outline, he says, you know, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, and God made it grow. And uh, we, we know about Apollos. We looked at him a couple of weeks ago, and it says there on your outline, now a Jew named Apollos, and you remember that uh, this would be very odd because Apollos was a pagan god, Apollo was a god. Jews didn't even take the name of other gods on their lips. So here's the guy who's Jewish, but he's named after a foreign god. An Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, and he came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. So when you look at Apollos, Apollos would come from a a very, very lax cultural background, religiously speaking. He comes from Alexandria, which would be, um, they they were religious, but, but not very legalistic. And, and so Paul, uh, or when 
Apollos would come to Corinth, he's not bothered by the culture. Now, he doesn't embrace it, but he's not bothered. One of the things that you find is that Christians have different cultural backgrounds within the body of Christ. For instance, um, I was raised in Miami, and so the student ministry that I grew up in, we went to the beach after church every Sunday. We had meetings at the beach, we had picnics at the beach. Most of what we did was at the beach because there was just water there in Miami. It's what we did. So right after high school, I go to a Christian college in Kentucky, and they have a rule, and it's called no mixed bathing. I never heard of such a thing. And in the no mixed bathing, men and women don't even swim at the same time or the same place. We keep that completely separate. Now, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's a very, very different cultural experience. So one's more comfortable with some things. One is less comfortable with some things. That makes sense? And you notice it says that he was eloquent. And that word eloquent means an orator. And Paul says, you know, I didn't use eloquent words or lofty words. Well, well, apparently Apollos did. So he was a very exciting pastor. In our culture, we would say rock, rock culture pastor. Now, I'm not opposed to that. There's a couple of guys that I think the world of, their statement of faith is very orthodox, very biblical, but they do things in church that would just be weird to me but it works. And uh, one of them is in Texas, and he does this thing where he drives a Mercedes-Benz on the stage. His stage is a little bit bigger than ours. I'm a little jealous. So, and he gets out, and he's going to talk on relationships. So he has this Mercedes-Benz, and he walks in, and he starts rubbing it, and he goes, this is such a sexy car, just to feel the curves. Can you just see the curves? And talking and building how great and wonderful this car is, and just the feel. And then he pops the trunk, and he says, but here's the problem with this car. And he pulls out some luggage, and he goes, there's junk in the trunk. And the crowd goes wild, you know? That you gotta, you know and, and he does this whole thing on relationships, and there's like a verse in there somewhere. You've got to look very hard to find it. But, but everybody gets what he's saying, and, he, and, and you know, God uses it. Now, uh, I, it would be, that would be, be wrong for me, but, but it works for him. I don't know how, but it, but it works for him, and I'm cool with that. One of the guys down south, down in Broward County, very, very uh, wonderful church, growing church, loves to make very dramatic points. So one day, he has this wire taken from the, the balcony all the way down to the pulpit. He puts on a Superman suit, attaches himself to the wire and comes flying down into the pulpit like this, holding his Bible. And then he makes the point, and nobody ever forgets the point. Now, I don't do stuff like that. First of all, because I know I would be the one guy I'm coming down and the wire would break. I just know that. And I'm that guy, so I'm not going to do that. But, but his, his statement of faith is very orthodox. He loves the Lord. Uh, very, very bible light. I think he should be a little bit more Bible-heavy, but, but he's not, but God uses it. But we're not divided, but we're very, very different. Then the next group we would find would be Cephas or Peter. There in in verse 12 he says, some say I'm of Apollos and I of Cephas. Now Cephas is Peter. And so when Peter was born, he was named Simon, which means Hebrew, in the Hebrew means hearing. When Jesus encounters him, Jesus calls him Peter, which is Petros or rock or rocky, and that's in the Greek. But in the Aramaic, they would say Cephas, and that just means rock. So it's another way of saying Peter. So you sometimes you'll see Simon, Simon, Peter, or Cephas, and it's all Peter. Now, you want to write this down. Peter's from an ultra-conservative background, ultra-conservative background. And uh, you see in Galatians, it says, Paul speaking, says, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. 
And, and so what we find about Peter, Peter's ministry was to the Jewish people. He grew up in an ultra-conservative religious environment up in the Galilee. And so very, very religiously conservative. So when Peter would go to synagogue, you'd have the women sitting on one side and the men sat on the other side. And there was a divider between the two. The women would always be covered pretty much from head to toe. And it's just, just how they did things culturally there. So Peter comes to Corinth, and there in Corinth, we would say the ladies are showing up in mini skirts and short pants and things of that nature, and Peter's a little freaked out about that. And, and so he's probably a little bit more legalistic. And it's something that he appeared to struggle with. We don't typically struggle with that here, but, but his, his background when he encountered the Gentiles, it was, it was very different for him. So much so that, that there in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says this there in your outline. He says, now when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Whole nother story. But at least we can say that, that he was at times uncomfortable uh, just with the, the culture that some of the other believers had as he went outside of his very, very religious culture. Some people in church life are in the, the camp of Cephas. And they're the ones who don't just come out of the world. They come out of anybody who's not as spiritual or who don't hold the same standard that they hold. And they have a whole list of all the things that you need to do. And if you don't hold that list, they're not going to associate with you. And so for some of us, if we find ourselves in that camp, we might need to lighten up and understand that just because we have, a, um, we have a standard or we have a conviction, that doesn't mean that everybody has that conviction. And so you need to make sure that you don't break fellowship over things that the Bible doesn't speak about. Does that make sense? But then there's this last group that on the outside seems very spiritual. And it says, some said, I am of Christ, there in your outline. Again, this sounds very spiritual. Paul sees this as a problem. And I want you to write this down. This is the Lone Ranger Christian, the Lone Ranger Christian. They say, I just follow the Lord. I just listen, just me and Jesus. I take all of my orders from him. They would forget that Paul would write here in your outline, obey your leaders and submit to them and to their authority. They would say, I only listen to Jesus. I don't listen to any man, any institution, any hierarchy. I just listen to Jesus. I would suggest that if you're listening to Jesus, that Jesus that you're listening to is going to call you to be attached to a church and find your purpose within that church. That's where you're going to begin to grow. Um, This would be the person, um, how would I describe it? If you've ever been in the military, you'll know that when you're in the military, you know exactly your place. So you've never met somebody, somebody you meet on the street and you go, I'm in the military, I'm in the army. You say, well, who are you with in the army? Are you with the you know, special forces, rangers? Are you with the 82nd Airborne, 10th Mountain Division? Who are you with? I say, no, 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 no. Nothing like that. I'm in the army, but I only take my orders from the big guy, the president of the United States. I'm not really attached to any unit. I just take my orders from the president. Those of you who've ever been in the military, is that how it works? 
Absolutely not. I mean, you know, you say, well, who are you with? You know, Alpha Company, 3rd Battalion, 20th Special Force, you know, whatever it is you're with, you just know exactly who, where, what. You also know that when they say fall in, you know exactly where you stand. You have, you have in your platoon, you're going to have squads. You might call it a stick, might be called a team, but you know exactly where you are, which one, and where you stand in that particular line. And so this one who said, I just follow Jesus is missing out on, on what it really means to follow Jesus. Another way of saying it would be when you and I were born, um, we were all born part of the human race, the human family. But wouldn't you agree that we all do better when a particular family takes us home? I mean, can you imagine a child being born part of the human family and uh, they're at this house for three or four days, this house for a month or so, next house for three or four months, and here, there, and everywhere, and they grow up that way, but they never really attach to a particular family. When you see a child in that condition, what you'll see is that this is a child that, that's it's growing up and, and emotionally and spiritually and physically, it's, it's never quite right. It's never quite right. Because God has designed us, although we're part of the human family, to be raised in a particular family. And it's the same thing as it relates to the church. If you're a believer here today, yes, we all follow Jesus, but that's following him as part of a local family, a local church. There's, there's a part to play for every believer. So as we wrap this up today, um, let me say this. Uh, first of all, I'll read the last verse. Let us not neglect our church meetings as some do, but encourage and warn one another, especially now that the time of his coming back is drawing near. As we look at these groups, what we find is that some, and you want to write this down, were too deep in one group, in a particular group. And that'd be, I'm following Cephas. I'm following Apollos. I'm following Paul. And they forgot to recognize that God was working through all of them and God's working was greater than their particular group. Another group who said, I just follow Jesus, and it sounded very spiritual. Those who claimed to just follow Jesus were in no group. They were never accountable in any way. They, they never tapped into any place. They were just kind of on their own doesn't make sense in the military. It doesn't make sense in family life. It doesn't make sense for children growing up. So here's what I would say today. The first issue that Paul wants to deal with is finding that place where we are supposed to be. If you're part of the group that says, I just follow Jesus, I, I want you to make a commitment to find the church that's just right for you, where God has for you. I hope it's this church I'd love for it to be this church, but if it's not, you need to find the church that God has for you. But you can't grow and mature in the body of Christ if you're not part of the body of Christ. If you're part of the family of God, it means you're going to be part of a particular family in the family of God. Now, if this is your church home, I want you to make a commitment over the course of the next three or four weeks to make sure that you're here every Sunday, because we're going to talk about what it means to actually be a believer from the point, the viewpoint of Paul the Apostle. It also helps you, if you're here for three or four weeks, to develop a habit of going to church. And hopefully over the course of the next few weeks, God's going to begin to speak inside of you through his word, and it's going to place a hunger where you're going to say, I need to be there to hear what he's saying 
next. We're out of time. I need to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, here's our prayer. We pray, God, that for each of us, wherever we find ourselves, maybe too deep in one group to where we've come to the place where we don't think that you're actually actually operating in another group, uh, we realize, Lord, today that the body of Christ is much larger than, than our particular church. On the other hand, for some of us, we've never tapped into any church. We're here, there, we're everywhere. It would never work in the life of a child, wouldn't work in the military, but somehow we thought it could work for us in our spiritual walk. And so today we commit to being part of a church, whether this church or a church, but we're going to be tapped into the body of Christ, finding our, our place, our purpose, and allowing you to accomplish your purpose in our lives. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.